You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. We would like to welcome everyone to the United States Institute of Peace. My name is Lise Grande. I'm the president of USIP, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a public institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping to resolve violent conflict abroad. We're very honored today at USIP to host an important conversation on the legal efforts underway to protect Ukrainian sovereignty and hold perpetrators accountable for the crimes that have been committed during Russia's unprovoked, unjustified war of aggression in Ukraine during which civilians have been killed and targeted, schools, hospitals, malls have been bombed, and civilians have been forcibly transferred to Russian territories, executed, held captive, and subjected to sexual violence by Russian forces. The, time, the timing of our discussion today is not coincidental. Today is Ukrainian Constitution Day which commemorates the moment when Ukraine formalized its status as a sovereign, independent, and democratic nation deserving of the same protection, including from aggression, as all other countries in the world. USIP is most particularly honored to mark this occasion with the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Her Excellency Oksana Makovra who has served in her current role as ambassador to the United States since 2021, having previously served as Ukraine's Minister of Finance from 2018 to 2020. The ambassador has played an exceptional role during this crisis, educating U.S. lawmakers and the U.S. public on the crimes being committed and mobilizing widespread support to hold people accountable for these. I hope everyone joins me in paying tribute to the ambassador's leadership. Madam Ambassador. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lisa. And thank you to the Institute of Peace. You have been such an unbelievable partner in this new initiative, which is not new because justice is something that Ukraine always needed, but it became important uh, even more important during the 125 days that we are living now. And this is not the first and definitely not the last event that we are doing together. And we look forward to uh, having your institute as one of the main platforms <clears throat> to discuss these issues, to find solutions, because they are imp important not only for Ukraine, but for everyone who believes in justice. Um, again, I'm very glad to be here with my colleagues, uh, with the Institute of Peace, but also with our General Prosecutor, Irina Venediktova, who will be with us. The Ambassadors, uh, Beth Van Schack and Anton Korinevich, uh, who will be online, and Councillor Ellie Rosenbaum. What a great team of people to discuss these issues today. 26 years ago, as uh, Lisa just said, after 24 hours of uh, non-stop deliberations, Ukraine adopted its constitution. Uh, it has been uh, 
a great day in Ukraine's history when just a couple of years after regaining our independence, after hundreds of years of uh, occupation by the Soviet Union and Russian Empire before that, we received our main, main document, the main law that governed us. I'm very pleased that in the, with us today we have Judge Foute, who has been an uh, instrumental member of the team that worked on the Constitution. And I was privileged to work for IFAS those days and alongside with Judge to work with the lawmakers and uh, the parliament on this very important document. So I would like to uh, congratulate everyone on Ukraine's Constitution Day. Very important. Yes, we're a young country in the modern days, but we have a very long tradition of constitutionalism. And Ukrainian constitution uh, of Pilip Orlik, which was adopted in 1710, was one of the first U European constitutions. One was one of the first actually world constitutions, which laid foundation for separation of power, which laid foundation for the rights of the people, and like constitution of the United States, uh, also had a human life and the human rights at the, uh, as the main uh, objective for the state to guard, protect, and support. Today, the Russia continues the unprovoked aggression. And again, after eight years of war, 125 days ago, the full-scaled war returned to Ukraine everywhere. With this war, Ukraine not only attack our homes, not only kill our people, but our political, economic, social, and all the rights, including the religious rights and cultural rights, are under attack. So this war is not just attack on the territory. The bombs that hit our schools and destroy our, our, our hospitals are not only doing the damage that you see on TV, but they also deny our children's right to education and deny our right for free health care provided in our constitution. The bombs that damage church and museums attack a very um, constitutional right, cultural and religious rights, which also our constitution protects. The ballistic missiles that hit residential areas affect another right provided to us by the constitution. They deprive thousands of Ukrainians from the rights to housing. It's barbaric attack on nuclear plants Again, you can find in our constitution the right to safe environment, and that right has been denied by Russians by attacking so many, not only nuclear plants, but other uh, potential hazardous uh, sites. So as the list of the constitutional rights so brutally abused now by Russia, we also understand that this is much bigger than just a war on a sovereign country. The legal community must consolidate the efforts to give this issue the highest attention. And we are very glad that we have the legal community working with us on all these different issues and not only qualifying and discussing that what happens to us is a genocide, but also that you know this destruction, and just want to remind you that during the 125 days that more than 150 schools have been completely wiped out in Ukraine. More than 300 hospitals have been eliminated. And when I say that, it's not just a couple of doors and windows. It's the whole hospital is gone. Uh, more than now together, you know, uh, a dozen of millions of civilians either had to flee the country or internally displaced people. And in addition to this 12 million Ukrainians who are displaced either inside or outside, more than 10 million constantly live under threat. 
The Russian troops not only attack us and destroy and kill, they also commit war crimes everywhere in Ukraine. And we all know what happened in Bucha and Derpin and Borodyanka and other places which we were able to liberate. We can only guess and pray for the safety of people who are now under occupation in Kherson, Mariupol, and many, many other places. More than 20% of Ukrainian territory is illegally held by Russia at the moment. So we all understand that the first priority, of course, to win. You know, that's why we are very grateful to President Biden, to administration, to Congress on a bipartisan basis, to, to all Americans, actually, for this strong solidarity and support, and for providing us with so much needed support in defense, with weapons, with financial, economic support, but also sanctions. And today is one of the great days when both Department of State, not both, three of them, Department of State, uh, Commerce Department, and Treasury announced the new wave of sanctions, very strong ones against uh, a number of companies and individuals. So that definitely, you know, we need that to be expanded. We need much more. We are grateful for what we have received because we need to win. But equally important for us is to our pursuit of justice. Because not only we have to win, but we together collectively have to ensure that this does not happen again. And it sends the message that everyone who does that in the 21st century will not only be stopped, but also be brought to justice. That's why, and we will discuss it today, and we hear from our speakers, uh, we're doing everything on that front, from the International Court of Justice to International Court, European Court of uh, Human Rights, to International Criminal Court, to individual criminal investigations inside the country, outside. There should be no place on our planet where these war criminals will go unpunished. Now, I would like to also say that, how, that we are very grateful to to know and see all these initiatives, from the Joint Investigation Team to Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group to now the War Crimes Accountability Team just uh, uh, announced recently when the uh, Attorney General visited uh, Ukraine and met with our Prosecutor General. And, uh, you know, it's, I think, all of this together will create an infrastructure. And sometimes it's going to be a new infrastructure. And maybe this is the time, as we discussed last time, it's a start of the reform of those institutions that failed to react 125 days ago. And we together are creating something that will only react to this war in Ukraine, but also be a safeguard for the future. And I would like to finish with a quote by a famous guy, Albert Einstein, who we all know for other reasons, but who also has been one of the most strong defenders of the human rights in the face of Nazi aggression, who said, the strength of the Constitution lies entirely in the determination of each citizen to defend it. This is what we do these days. We, all Ukrainians, all 40 million of us, are defending our Constitution on the battlefield, here in Washington, D.C., everywhere else, together with all of our strategic friends and allies. And we will defend our Constitution. It will continue to govern uh, life in Ukraine everywhere, including in Donetsk and Lugansk and in Crimea. And we will win together. Thank you very much, and I look forward to this wonderful discussion. We're very pleased to introduce our distinguished panelists for today, starting first with Her Excellency Irina Benediktova, who is online with us. 
Irina is the Prosecutor General of Ukraine. She was the first female to occupy her position. Prior to becoming the Prosecutor General, she served as the Acting Director for the State Bureau of Investigation, and she was the first woman in that capacity in Ukrainian history to chair a government law enforcement agency. Madam Venediktova has served as a professor at Kharkiv National University as an arbitrator of the International Commercial Arbitration Court, a member of the Scientific Advisory Board at the Supreme Court of Ukraine, and as a member of the Ukrainian Bar Association. Excellency, you are very welcome. We're also pleased to introduce Ambassador Anton Kornevich. He is the ambassador at large with the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, an agent of Ukraine, before the International Court of Justice in the allegations of genocide case. The ambassador served as the permanent representative of the President of Ukraine in the Autonomous Republic of Crimea and is a specialist in international law, international criminal law, and international energy law. You are most welcome. We're delighted to welcome Ambassador Beth Van Schock. She is the ambassador at large for global criminal justice at the US Department of State. The ambassador plays the critical role of advising the Secretary of State on issues related to the prevention of and response to atrocity crimes, including war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Ambassador, you're very welcome. We're also delighted, honored, to welcome Dr. Ely Rosenbaum, the Director of Human Rights Enforcement Strategy and Policy in the U.S. Department of Justice. Earlier this month, Dr. Rosenbaum was appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland to serve concurrently as Counselor for War Crimes Accountability. In his role as the Director of the Office of Special Investigations, Dr. Rosenbaum has been responsible for two decades for identifying, investigating, and taking legal action against Nazi criminals. Doctor, you are very welcome. We'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. For our online audience, we hope you join the discussion using the chat box on the event page. The event hashtag is at UkraineUSIP. We would like to begin our first question with the Prosecutor General. Madam Prosecutor, in your role, you have been leading efforts to investigate and prosecute crimes committed against civilians during the Russian invasion. All of us are very interested in knowing the major challenges that you have faced and that you are facing. Good afternoon, dear Madam President. Thank you very much for so good work. Uh, for me, it's actually so honor and pleasure to be on this platform. And I was happy to hear that I was a university professor, actually, because all these days in the war, you live in absolutely other life. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, and I can say like this, our dear friends, it's a great pleasure to be, even though in a virtual format, with you today and to discuss our common efforts and uh, existence avenues for holding accountable perpetrators of international crimes that have been committed in Ukraine and the best way to deliver injustice for victims. 
core of this is, of course, effective investigation. At the outset, however, I wish to congratulate all Ukrainians with the day of our Constitution. Constitution is not only the supreme law of the country, it's also the protector of the independence, liberty and human rights. The very notions for which Ukrainians are fighting already for 125 days and which Russian policies and forces are attempting to deprive us of. At the very beginning of the armed conflict, I said that it is my personal mission to ensure that no one is held unaccountable for their actions in Ukraine. We are working extremely hard to fulfill this promise, and our work is multifaceted. Law enforcement agencies of Ukraine are taking active steps to timely document crimes, collect and analyze evidence, evidences, and consequently identify and prosecute perpetrators in line with international standards and best practices. This is so since we understand that even though we work with the international community and the international criminal courts hand in hand, the bulk of investigations and the largest numbers of prosecutions will be done by Ukraine itself. Simultaneously, we are receiving unprecedented international support to enhance investigation and prosecution into four international crimes. Significant number of states are assisting the Office of the Prosecutor General in different directions, be it with expert assistance, including forensic assistance, identification and documentation of crimes, or support with protective equipment. Finally, with our foreign friends, and especially I would like to underline the immeasurable support of the United States, we have established several international efforts to seek justice for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other crimes. Before going into the detail of our investigations and prosecutions, I would like to emphasize one point. Today, Ukraine, together with the whole civilized world, is fighting for a stable, democratic, and prosperous future. Fighting against unconciliated attempts to target, kill, and terrorize civilian population. What we have been seeing throughout the last four months from the Russian side is nothing else but a well-thought-out warfare tactic of terror and fear. Started from the very first day, the Russian armed forces are in the Targeting civilians and civilian objects, such as hospitals, schools, and other civilian infrastructure. Only within the last 24 hours, Russia has shot Kharkiv, as a result of which seven civilians died and 26 injured. They also attacked uh, the city of Lysychansk, where eight civilians died and 20 injured. Eleven rockets were also fired at Mykolaiv, and as a result of shelling of Pachak in the Mykolaiv region, three civilians died and six injured, including children. And right on the end of the workday, 
when people were harmed in the supermarket, Russia committed yet another act of terror in launched and installed into a shopping mall in the city of Kremenchuk, Poltava region. A number of casualties is still being determined as the people are still under rubble. You saw this notification about at least 18 persons died, more than 50 are injured, and over 60, 36 persons were missing. And all this only one day. You might ask why Russia resorts to such warfare policies um, that blatantly run contrary to international law and the rules of mean and methods of warfare. My answer is that this is done to subjugate Ukrainian people and consequently erase Ukrainian identity. Kremlin wishes for Ukrainians to be afraid to identify themselves as such. This is how they attempt to defeat Ukrainians' independence and identity. But what these four months of war has shown is that the actions are in vain. Now, more than ever, Ukraine is consolidated. Yes, we are tired. I saw my amazing ambassador. She is beautiful, but she, she is tired. You see me now. <laughs> I'm tired, but I'm so motivated to do everything that all world with Ukraine will win in this war as uh, fast as possible. Now, to put Russian actions into perspective, since 24 February 2022, as a result of widespread and systematic targeting of civilian population and civilian objects in violation of norms and principles of international humanitarian law, close to 6,000 civilians, including more than 300 children, have died, and over 6,800 civilians were injured. This means that nearly three children die daily in Ukraine. Moreover, Russia deliberately targets Ukrainians' critical infrastructure, objects of energy, transport, industrial and social infrastructure. And this is done on one hand to sow fear, create a sense of mm, uninhabitable living conditions, and exacerbate already difficult humanitarian situation. And on the other hand, to cause more economic and financial damage to Ukraine and make post-war reconstruction of the country constantly and more unattractive. As a result of war, you have the statistics from uh, Ukrainian ambassador, from our ambassador. I want to say these figures again because they are huge and it's actually a big threat for future beings. Uh, now, as a result of war, near 25,000 objects of civil infrastructure have been targeted and majority of them destroyed. As you see from these statistics, we have a quite heavy caseload. To date, we have already documented and I investigated more than 20,000 instances of war crimes. This includes attacks of civilians and civilian objects, deliberate murders, facts of ill-treatment and unlawful deprivation of liberty, cases of rape and other forms of sexual violence, pillages, and so on. At this stage, 
on average, we daily documented and lodged investigation into 100, 200, 300 incidents of war crimes. Within the framework of these proceedings, over uh, 120 individuals have been reported as suspects. 15, only 15 of them are in Ukrainian captivity as a prisoners of war, while the rest are at large. Ten individuals have been indicted and we already have six convictions. Two individuals form indiscriminating shelling, one officer for willful killing and three representatives of Russian forces for pillage. We also have stand alone criminal proceedings in so-called anchor case into the crime of aggression as well as a pre-trial investigation in the crime of genocide. I have said this on many occasions that investigations of four international crimes is legally and evidentially complex, requiring the engagement of a wide range of experts with the multiple areas of knowledge. Therefore, this is a challenge for our prosecutors and investigators, especially in circumstances when the intensity and the geographical scope of crimes are growing. Some of the hardships that we face down this path are following. First and the foremost is inability to access to occupied territories. We simply do not have any possibilities to enter territories under Russian control and access the situation and document crimes. For instance, we are unable to get into Mariupol and document must carry that took place and is still going on there. This is one of the 21st century's worst war crimes. We are even unable to determine the death toll, while Russia methodically takes measures to erase any evidences of crimes committed. Second, Russia attempts to make Ukraine unsafe place a place that is under constant and continuous threat, sending a message that there is no safe place in Ukraine. This heavily influences both civilian population and law enforcement. Prosecutors and investigators are forced to work in dangerous circumstances, often under the barrages of fire or trying to locate and avoid booby traps. This is also connected with the challenges of identifying and locating victims and witnesses, many of whom, because of this gloomy threat, have relocated to a safer place within or outside of Ukraine. Uh, we have also observed unwillingness or hesitations on behalf of victims or their families to cooperate with law enforcement authorities. This is also a multifaceted problem. On the one hand, civilians are cautioned to assist and work with us uh, they fear possible repercussions from the Russian side. On the other hand, especially in sexual violence-related cases, there is a fear of revictimization if a victim will come forward. This obviously significantly uh, interferes with our capacity to document and investigate crimes.
Finally, of course, there is an issue of identifying the perpetrators and bringing them to justice, which is a complex problem. We, however, are not intimidated with these challenges. Challenges are there to overcome them. And with the assistance of our international partners, we are step by step and hand in hand surmounting them. One message that we all agree upon is that the democratic world order cannot cohabitate with the cynical and barbaric policies targeting peaceful civilians. We should not be afraid of going to a supermarket after work or visiting friends and family in other cities. Humankind worked hard after the second institution and mechanisms to respond to atrocities now it is our turn to use them effectively. Madam Prosecutor General, thank you for sharing with us the extraordinary initiatives and lines of effort that have been underway under your leadership to identify the perpetrators of war crimes and crimes against humanity and to hold them accountable. Madam Prosecutor General, we're aware that at least 18,000 separate cases of war crimes have been registered with your office. When you look at that huge number, how are you and your team going to prioritize those cases? What is the methodology that you'll be using to decide of the 18,000, which are the ones that need to be prosecuted first and with the most attention? President, unfortunately, 18,000 were two days ago, now more than 20,000. And again, it will be higher and higher. Of course, we should prioritize the case. We understand, for example, what we have now in the territories which we start. It's our obligation. It's our obligation to start investigation even if we don't have now possibilities to do investigation effectively. But who knows? Maybe tomorrow or after tomorrow, we will uh, we will be uh, we will have this act. Well, in areas that we can enter and walk, we are doing this, notwithstanding the risk. Unfortunately, we have lost our colleagues in this war, and several of them were injured during implementing their function. Uh, however, areas we are having relocated our offices to safe settings. In areas where there are active hostages, we have a strong coordination with military and obtain information and react adequately. We also work with open source information. We have set up a separate team of over 50 prosecutors to document evidences of war crimes available in open sources in line with international standards of evidence collection so that such evidence is admissible before domestic and international institutions. In addition, the Office of the Prosecutor General, in cooperation with partners, has created a platform, warcrimes.gov.ua. It is an evidence hub where information on violence of international humanitarian law is collected. It enables everyone in an easy and safe manner, according to a simple and clear algorithm to report alleged war crimes and violations of international humanitarian law throughout these resources. So this is an additional mechanism to identify uh, concrete violations. 
what we have in Ukraine? We have here three approaches. War crimes, crimes of aggression. It's more than 20 cases, actually, for today. We have our anchor case, where, where we have more than 600 suspects. And another one, it is genocide. We are doing everything to be successful in this approach. If we speak about war crimes, so we interviewed all victims whom we have. For example, from first days of war, we had our prosecutors on the border, and our refugees were interviewed in the framework of criminal cases to have them status of victims in criminal case. And from other side, it's very important for the um, right to have civilian confiscation. You know, we created task force and we have done it with the USA partners in the framework uh, of kleptocurrency. Then we interview people who came back after exchanging. We interviewed people who were evacuated. We, huge, uh, we have huge massive of interceptions, satellite images, and of course, when we have this huge massive of everything, we should understand in which cases we will be successful in the nearest future. Because again, we should do everything to avoid multiple interviewing of people, for example, and do everything to avoid re-traumatization of people. But we, what we have done in the Kiev region, after the occupation, we had uh, squares in whole key region in different cities absolute, with absolutely different approaches. Now we have this methodology. And what we have today in Kremenchuk, actually, we have done the same. We uh, have done, uh, our, we use our methodology. We had investigators from security services of Ukraine, from national police different experts from Ministry of Justice and forensic experts. Our experts from ACA, experts of international humanitarian law, Wayne George was with his uh, team in Kremenchuk on the land, and it was very important for me and for prosecutors. We had prosecutors from region, and we had prosecutors from Special Department of War, and we have people from our military, bo military board, we created military board on the platform of uh, Office of Prosecutor General. Actually, these 12 people, they are militaries, and today on Pemichuk we have uh, these militaries who were experts in missiles. And when we have such complicated, such complex teams, it's very important for us because, for example, this Pemichuk case, we can use uh, this case in our national jurisdiction, uh, if we speak about war crimes, if we speak about genocide, because if we took full pattern, full pictures of war crimes inside the countries, it could be genocide. I'm sure it's just a question of time. And then if International Criminal Court decide to take this case, if Prosecutor of International Criminal Court decide to take this case as a case uh, crime against humanity, it will be good possibilities for, uh, for, this, uh, for this team too, because we have done everything under these standards of international um, in, uh, humanitarian law. That's why this is our methodology. All cases are absolutely different. All these 20,000 cases, they're separate, they're differ, differ, uh, different, 
And in one case, we have one episode, and others, we have uh, hundreds of episodes, actually. They are absolutely different. But, again, it is a question of time. Accountability and justice is extremely important. And Ukrainian law enforcement agencies, Ukrainian government, Ukrainian parliament, and you saw every day Ukrainian leader, President Zelensky, we will do everything that this process will be successful in the end. Madam Prosecutor General, thank you for walking us through the extraordinary steps that you are taking and your office is taking. It's very striking that you are doing this even as your country is fighting for its very survival. If you allow, we would like to turn to Ambassador Beth Van Skok. Ambassador, many people have been watching the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group and the Conflict Observatory as they work to support Ukrainian officials, including the Prosecutor General, in their efforts to take the lead in holding the perpetrators of war crimes accountable. Where do these efforts stand now? Yeah, terrific. Thanks so much for that question. Thank you all for being here um, and for organizing this important event. And it's lovely to see um, our Ukrainian friends here on the screen. I was just um, visiting with the Prosecutor General. Eli was there with the Attorney General. And um, Attorney General Merrick and I had a chance to sit down with her privately for a moment. Um, and she outlined many of the, the challenges she's facing, but also the fact that these challenges are meant to be overcome. And it's really an honor, I think, for me and my office, and I know Eli feels the same, to be a part of um, trying to assist with that. So the main effort that my office, the Office of Global Criminal Justice, has been working on is called the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group. And this was a project that predated Russia's full-scale launch of its invasion in February. The idea was to place experts um, with the Prosecutor General's office to assist with ongoing war crimes cases. At the time, these were emerging out of the Donbass and out of Crimea. Um, and it was a rather modest project um, run by a predecessor of mine, Ambassador Clint Williamson, um, who has a long history in working with international criminal tribunals. I worked with him in my, the, my first job as a lawyer was at the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal, and he was one of the more senior lawyers there. So it's been amazing to see how his career has evolved over the years. Of course, with the, the relaunch of the invasion, this project had to scale. And so under the direction of the Prosecutor General and with her assistance, we have reached out to other donor community members. And so the European <clears throat> Union now and the United Kingdom have both invested in this project. And the new uh, European Democracy Resilience Initiative of President Biden has given us additional funding. So the idea is to essentially embed experts in international criminal law investigations, including the investigation of war crimes and crimes against humanity, other international crimes, with um, the Prosecutor General in her headquarters. And then also Wayne Jordash, who was mentioned, will be forming what are called mobile justice teams. And these individuals will be interdisciplinary experts as well, veterans of the war crimes efforts around the world, to then be deployed out into the field. And so the mention was made of this horrific attack against the shopping mall one of the mobile justice teams was there on the first day after it happened, working with the investigators, national police, and others under the prosecutor general's direction to collect evidence to a criminal law standard, preserve that evidence, and make it available for any future accountability processes that will happen. Um, this now, with funding from this EDRI, in, this EDRI initiative, will enable us to have some real longevity with this project over many years, um, because this is going to be an enormous challenge. Right. Obviously, the Prosecutor General outlined this. The entire country is now essentially a crime scene. Um, there will be cases to be done for many years with the, the 
courts in Ukraine being the, the first line of attack, but then the International Criminal Court, and then also potentially courts within Europe if Russian perpetrators begin to travel, which we know they always do. And we saw with the Pinochet case years later, right? Charges exist, there is no statute of limitations for war crimes, and so charges can be brought in any court where they have um, the ability to exercise universal jurisdiction over international crimes. The Conflict Observatory is also a new, exciting initiative, something that we have done on a smaller scale with respect to the conflict in Syria, but now really going in much more full force. This is our Conflict and Stabilization Organization has created um, what will be an online platform for collecting open source information, often information that is difficult to get at access to because it is behind a payroll wall or you require some sort of a, a subscription to have it. So we will be collecting information from satellite imagery, from scrubbing Twitter feeds, um, all the journalistic work that's being done, uh, human rights organizations, et cetera, aggregating that together and then producing refined analysis to show the patterns and practices. So some of the first reports that will be generated by this conflict observatory will involve attacks on hospitals and other medical facilities. As the prosecutor general mentioned, there have been dozens and dozens of these. In addition, attacks on educational institutions and attacks on cultural um, elements of the cultural heritage, which is part of this effort to erase the Ukrainian culture. And so the Conflict Observatory will make all of this refined analytical product available to prosecutors around the world, including um, the prosecutor general's team, but also the International Criminal Court. Ambassador, earlier you and I were talking about the remarkable efforts to support Ukrainian leadership as they try and hold perpetrators accountable. In your experience, in your opinion, are there things that the U.S. could be doing more of in this regard? You've talked about some of the important initiatives underway. What more would you like to see this administration, your office do? Well, as you know, this administration has been incredibly um, devoted to strengthening Ukraine's hand with respect to this conflict when it comes to security assistance, the whole raft of sanctions and additional new sanctions coming out today, all of this support for accountability, and then also one of the largest, if not the largest, humanitarian donor. And we met when we were in, um, in the region with UNHCR and other entities that are providing that essential humanitarian assistance to individuals who are, are suffering under the war. And as we know, the epicenter of the suffering is, of course, Ukraine, but Russia's invasion has created a whole series of deleterious reverberations around the globe when it comes to food security, the, the, the economy, the global economy, etc. And so it's really a, a global issue. When it comes on the accountability front, the U.S. is supporting all international investigations that are underway. Um, Ukraine, I think, has been incredibly strategic and effective in using lawfare as part of its efforts to repel the efforts by Russia to subjugate Ukraine. And so the United States is supportive of cases before the International Court of Justice under the Genocide Convention, the European Court of Human Rights, earlier cases that um, predated the current invasion. Um, also, the, we've welcomed the opening of the investigation by the ICC prosecutor. The prosecutor has been here in Washington. We had him meet with our Ukraine team to be able to be synced up there. And then I've recently been in The Hague meeting with him as well, finding more of what we can do. He's issued a 
note verbal with some very specific requests from states to assist him with his investigations. A whole number of our friends and allies have been able to deploy experts to the region, and I know DOJ is considering what more can be done in this regard as well. So, uh, you know, I think we're actually being quite forward-leaning when it comes to finding ways to assist with the accountability front, and particularly noting that it's the prosecutor general who really has the lead here. She is the legally constituted entity. She has a war crimes unit. She has jurisdiction. Her, her laws exist. There are some legal reforms that are being considered that would expand the ability to prosecute war crimes and crimes against humanity, but she can also work in partnership with the International Criminal Court, and so this is very much complementarity in action. International courts working in partnership with domestic courts. Ambassador, in other occasions where we've had the, the chance to, to be with you, um, we've talked about the, the web mm -hmm. that's being created through national efforts, through support from member states like the US, like European allies, through the International Criminal Court, through the ICJ, this dense web, all aimed at holding the perpetrators accountable so that if you break the rules-based international order, there will be consequences for that. When we last spoke together about this web, it was being formed, it was being shaped. Do you have confidence that that web can now catch the perpetrators? We have never seen the international community as united as we are um, since the Nuremberg era and then again in the 1990s when the Cold War ended and Russia was once again able to participate in the project, the rules-based international order and the project of international justice, which led to the creation of the Yugoslavia and Rwanda Tribunal and a whole series of other um, international and hybrid tribunals. So we're at another one of those moments where we see this incredible consensus. So we have joint investigation teams initiated by Ukraine, now joined by a number of European states. States. We have the Eurojust Genocide Network working together, meeting regularly, focused on Ukraine to ensure that prosecutors around the globe are able to share information in a frictionless way. And the states of the world have increasingly incorporated into their domestic codes international crimes and subjected them to universal jurisdiction so they can bring criminal charges against individuals when they fall within their jurisdictional reach, regardless of whether there's any nexus to those particular states. And so, you know, one once perpetrators start to travel, they can be caught anywhere. Now, that in, implies that perpetrators travel. So Ukraine can exercise in absentia jurisdiction, and some states can do so as well, but not all states can. We cannot, for example, nor can the International Criminal Court. So it will be incumbent upon these courts to gain custody over the accused. But we know that the justice is long, and we often say that justice delayed is justice denied, but when it comes to international criminal justice, that's not how it works. Sometimes time is on our side. People become complacent. They think the world has moved on. They think people have forgotten. We will not forget. These case files will be in existence. And the minute someone moves into the jurisdictional reach of a court, they can be, that, that jurisdictional reach can be activated and cases can be brought. Ambassador, that's a wonderful segue into um, our questions to Dr. Rosenbaum, who for decades has been part of an effort to hold Nazi war criminals accountable for the crimes that they committed 75 years ago. Dr. Rosenbaum, what kinds of support now is the Department of Justice here in the United States providing to Ukrainian officials through the war crimes accountability team that we've been discussing? Thank you, Lisa. It's, it's a privilege to be here. I should say I, I did, of course, cut my teeth so to speak, on the Nazi cases, but I and my colleagues have been working on cases involving post-war conflicts uh, for also now for, for decades. Uh, 
exactly a week ago, hard to believe, I, I had the privilege of being part of a Justice Department delegation uh, to Ukraine led by uh, Attorney General Garland. Ambassador Van Skak, as she said, um, well, she didn't say this part, a longtime hero of mine. I've said that to a lot of people. <laughs> I haven't said it in front of you in a public audience, but I say it now, uh, was, was with us. Feeling is mutual. Uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, uh, except you weren't it. Anyway, we met with uh, uh, Prosecutor General Venediktova and senior officials of her office uh, to discuss additional U.S. actions uh, to help Ukraine identify, apprehend, and prosecute those involved in war crimes and other atrocities in Ukraine. The world has seen many, many shocking images of the killings and devastation inflicted uh, by Russia in the course of its illegal and unprovoked uh, war of aggression. And it was an unforgettable and deeply inspiring experience to be, Madam Ambassador, in your country uh, while your people are displaying extraordinary courage every minute of every day uh, in fighting for freedom and for your country's uh, territorial integrity. I will never forget it. Uh, the Justice Department has been following with admiration as well uh, Ukraine's efforts uh, under uh, Prosecutor General uh, Venediktova's uh, leadership to ensure that the perpetrators and facilitators uh, of this unjust uh, war uh, are held accountable. Uh, and we at the Department of Justice will stand by her office to the fullest extent possible. We will continue to inventory our own capabilities uh, and determine where we might best collaborate with other parts of the U.S. government uh, to provide Ukraine with additional capabilities or funding. Uh, and we will coordinate closely with other investigative and support efforts, including those undertaken uh, by authorities in the EU, uh, such as the joint investigative team uh, and, of course, the work of the uh, Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group. Uh, efforts to uh, document investigate and, uh, we prosecutors never give, give up this fantasy, deter uh, war crimes in Ukraine are underway on an unprecedented scale. Uh, and they are expanding. We uh, at DOJ will continue to, to uh, be part of those efforts. During our visit uh, to Ukraine, the Attorney General announced the creation of the department's war crimes accountability team to centralize and strengthen DOJ's accountability efforts, including via our own uh, ongoing investigations, all of this in the wake of Russia's invasion. Uh, this initiative, which is part of a surge in federal law enforcement resources that the AG has directed be applied in response to the invasion of Ukraine, will provide wide-ranging technical assistance uh, including, uh, and there's some overlap with the ACA on this, operational assistance and advice regarding criminal prosecutions, evidence collection, uh, forensics, and uh, uh, relevant legal advice. Uh, we will continue to work closely with the Office of the Prosecutor General uh, to adapt to her office's changing needs as the conflict continues to evolve. This particular Justice Department initiative builds on the work that my agency has been doing uh, with Ukraine and other partners to counter Russia, Russian illicit financing 
and sanctions evasion. Uh, the recent seizures of super yachts uh, through the work of the DOJ-led interagency uh, uh, task force klepto capture, uh, work that we do alongside our global partners, understandably um, uh, garner headlines. I get it. Uh, but there is much more, much more going on behind the scenes as we continue to use all available resources uh, and employ cutting-edge investigative techniques to hold accountable individuals whose criminal actions are enabling Russia's unjust and cruel war against Ukraine. So we have a, a clear and simple message for anyone who would even consider participating in the commission of war crimes and other grave offenses in Ukraine. One word, don't. In particular, and this sort of picks up on what Ambassador Renskak was saying, we suggest to those people that they ought to pause to consider the many instances in which months, years, even decades after the crimes were committed, the US and other nations have gained custody of the offenders, such as when persons have made the mistake of visiting countries uh, with which the charging nations have extradition treaties in force. In, in my agency's uh, World War II Nazi prosecutions, we have pursued the offenders literally more than, at least as you said, more than seven decades after the crimes were committed. We've pursued them where necessary into old age, and we won a court case just two years ago. I helped try it myself. I never thought that would happen in 20, uh, 2020. Uh, uh, we won a court case against one such person in a Memphis courtroom just two years ago. So no one who participates in atrocity crimes in Ukraine will ever be able to stop looking over their shoulder, no matter where they go, wondering whether their criminal past has finally caught up with them. As Attorney General Garland succinctly and powerfully put it, there is no hiding place for war criminals. Uh, if I could just add a personal reflection, that's usually dangerous, but um, you know, I, um, I started in 1980 out, out of law school uh, working on uh, prosecuting, uh, investigating and prosecuting people who colloquially are called Nazi war criminals, but atrocity and, and persecution crimes. And from my earliest days as a baby prosecutor, um, a lot of the the cases that we investigated, that I even worked on, involved Russian and Ukrainian victims. Now, we had perpetrators who were Ukrainian, Russian, and, and even a, a Jewish man, uh, but for the most part, it was the victims. Um, in these settings, for instance, in the Nazi camps, Russians and Ukrainians were victims together. And often they, they were prisoners of war. They had fought the Nazis together. Their comrades had died. And ultimately, many of these people died in the camps. One of the first cases that I ever had, it ended up being one of our highest profile cases, involved prisoners um, who were forced to work on the German V2 missile program at Peenemunde, and then most notoriously at an underground V2 rocket factory that was part of the Buchenwald-Nordhausen uh, system. Uh, and that was back in 83, 84. 
that place had Russian and Ukrainian victims in significant numbers, and actually very few Jews, relatively speaking. In our World War II investigations, Russia, starting with when it was part of the Soviet Union, uh, Ukraine as well, and then post-Soviet Russia and post-Soviet Ukraine were partners in our work to achieve a measure of justice on behalf of all the victims of the Nazis, especially by giving us access to their archives. In fact, um, uh, for anyone who might be watching in Russia, um, read the history of it. Uh, my colleagues and I uh, were constantly criticized for collaborating with Moscow in these cases, but it was the right thing to do. We followed the evidentiary trail where it led, and we vindicated the rights, alas, often posthumously, of Russian victims and Ukrainian victims. Uh, but now, the inconceivable has happened. One of those uh, victimized countries, Russia, has assaulted another victimized country. Two countries that were invaded by the Nazis, one is now attacking the other. And honestly, when I hear the president of the Ru Russian Federation refer to Ukraine as, as Nazis, it's like fingers on the chalkboard for me, only a lot worse. Everybody knows who's channeling the Nazis in waging an aggressive war and committing atrocities. And Madam Ambassador, it's not your country. The world knows that. Uh, to me, in a sense, this is all encapsulated in the case of one Ukrainian victim. And I mean, I know you're familiar with the case, Boris Romanchenko. He was a survivor of the V2 missile factory at Nordhausen. He became one of the officers of the, um, uh, I believe it was the, the Buchenwald um, uh, uh, survivors group, a, a rapidly uh, dwindling population. And in March of, 19, of this year, at the age of 96, sitting in his apartment in Kharkiv, he was killed by a Russian strike. None of this should be happening. It needs to stop. It needs to stop. Thank you. Dr. Rosenbaum, thank you. Thank you. Can you see a situation where the U.S. might decide to try and prosecute Russian officials or soldiers who come here to the U.S. that have been implicated in a war crime. Can you see that happening? This new war crimes accountability team that the Attorney General set up is going to play, is playing an integral role in the department's ongoing investigations of potential war crimes over which the U.S. has jurisdiction, such as in the killing and wounding of U.S. journalists who've been covering Russia's invasion. Our war crimes statute uh, confers jurisdiction when the person committing the war crime or a victim of, of the war crime uh, is a member of the U.S. Armed Forces or is a, a, a national of our, our country. Um, and there are countless examples under other federal statutes of the Justice Department gaining custody of, of, of foreign nationals, including uh, uh, Russians and also including Ukrainians, uh, either because they visited the United States foolishly uh, or they immigrated here even more foolishly or because they visited a country with which the United States has 
an extradition treaty. Uh, a recent example uh, is the case of uh, uh, Yevgeny uh, Alexandrovich uh, Nikulin of Moscow. He's not of Moscow at the moment, as I'll explain, um, who was charged uh, uh, with hacking in uh, 2012 uh, into Dropbox, uh, LinkedIn, uh, and other, uh, another uh, social networking company uh, in the United States. Uh, Nikulin was arrested pursuant to an Interpol red notice while traveling in the Czech Republic. I guess he thought he'd be safe there. Uh, no, uh, back in 2016, and he was extradited by the Czech Republic uh, to face trial here in 2018. And in 2020, uh, he was sentenced uh, in San Francisco uh, to over seven years in prison. And that's why he's not uh, of Moscow at the moment. Uh, I, I should note uh, one last thing, that we don't have what's called present in jurisdiction uh, under our war crime statute. So uh, as we experienced, alas, in the Nazi cases, if war criminals uh, come here, um, uh, we don't have jurisdiction under the federal war crime statute. And in the Nazi cases, we had to um, use other uh, statutory uh, mechanisms to secure a measure of justice. So denaturalization, that is citizenship uh, revocation uh, in federal court, and then uh, deportation or sometimes extradition even without uh, uh, denaturalization. Uh, but uh, bipartisan legislation was recently introduced by Senators Grassley, Durbin, uh, uh, Graham, and Leahy, uh, the uh, Justice for Victims of War Crimes Act, uh, I'm, I imagine inspired by the uh, terrible suffering that we're all seeing in Ukraine. Uh, and that uh, bill, if enacted, uh, would close that gap. And it would also, uh, in effect, eliminate the statute of limitations on prosecuting war crimes cases. Uh, and we have this mantra at all the federal agencies, we look forward to working with the Congress always <laughs> on legislation. <laughs> Dr. Rosenbaum, thank you. May we ask, is Ambassador Konovich with us? No. Ambassador, we're delighted that you're with us today. We know that your focus has been on the creation of a special tribunal looking specifically at the crime of aggression. We'd like you to update us on where these efforts stand and which challenges you foresee as you continue to pursue this important option. Your Excellencies, dear colleagues, I hope you might hear me well. Uh, greetings from uh, the evening Kiev, and while we are talking here with you, it's another air raid siren here in Kiev. Uh -huh. So a lot of people are, uh, I think, I hope, in the shelters. And you know that these uh, air attacks uh, on all our cities and all our regions um, are really, I'm sure of that, are, are, are systematic war crimes committed by the Russian officials. And uh, the things which we see and which we saw, for instance, yesterday in Kremenchuk, of course, attacking the mall uh, is, is really the, the uh, most hor horrific uh, mass atrocity crimes that one could even, even imagine. And I would say that uh, uh, it's, it's really a big, a big uh, challenge for us and a big task for us now to find the right answers or to try to find the right answers together with our international partners to uh, have the legal response, the appropriate and relevant legal response to all the uh, violations of international law, which we see are done by the Russian Federation. 
I'm, I'm sure, the, the biggest violator of international law in the 21st century. Um, concerning our um, case in ICJ, I will just uh, maybe in the reaction to, to the things which were said. Concerning the allegations of genocide case in which I have the honor and privilege to represent the government of Ukraine as an agent, I hope that uh, in, in the recent days uh, we'll be able to file our memor memorial uh, on the merits, of course, with the substance of the case, and uh, so that we'll be able to pursue this case and we'll be able to go further with this case going on in the, in the International Court of Justice. And of course, intervention, as we always say in, in practically all the meetings with our international partners, intervention to this case as, as really genocide, as the Genocide Convention, uh, is not the matter of only Ukraine. This is a matter of international community, of course. Now, we do hope to see that uh, we may see interventions from our international partners to this case, because really those, those um, ho horrific allegations uh, by Russia of some uh, mythical uh, alleged genocide committed before the 24th of February in Donbass, and not only by Ukrainian authorities, are just, uh, are just un un uh, just have no legal basis at all, if I may say so. So concerning the, the, the second point is, of course, I think that this is a very important notion, which was mentioned by Dr. Rosenbaum, that it is important to try to fill the gaps. Because really the gaps appear, and the gaps in international law, and in particular international criminal justice system, they really are, uh, are, are leaving us with less chances of getting justice and getting accountability responsibility for the mass atrocity crimes. And uh, that is why Ukraine now comes to our international partners with the idea of a creation of two international mechanisms, which uh, we consider are important for us and for our international partners to get this justice done, to get justice prevail, and to make uh, international legal responsibility take really, really take place. Uh, the first mechanism, which I'm not going to describe today, but I'm sure that there will be other events, and I hope that my colleagues from, from the government of Ukraine will be able to do that, is the establishment of the Compensation Commission for Ukraine, the Claims Commission for Ukraine. The track which is led by the Ministry of Justice of Ukraine, and uh, there is a working group established under the, the decree of the President of Ukraine, uh, with the task of uh, creating the claims commission mechanism, which would be able to satisfy the claims by the Ukrainian private, uh, private persons, nationals, uh, private entities, uh, which suffered during this horrific aggression of the Russian Federation. And another track, which is also designed uh, to fill the gap, which now exists in the criminal justice system, uh, is the establishment of the special tribunal for the crime of aggression against Ukraine. This is a track which is led by the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs of Ukraine and which was actually suggested in the end of February of this year, um, I would say in different places altogether. In Kyiv, on the level of Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Office of the President, and in London by uh, leading uh, international legal professionals, professors, such as Philip Sands, Dapo Akande, and also professionals working in, 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 in um, the, the field in international courts and tribunals like Alex Whiting. And this uh, special tribunal for the crime of aggression against Ukraine, uh, we suggest this option to be deliberated, considered, and discussed with our international partners due to the fact that currently there is no international court or tribunal 
which can bring perpetrators of the crime of aggression against Ukraine to responsibility. ICC, which we really do count on a lot, uh, which we consider is an effective and active uh, mechanism of bringing perpetrators of three uh, uh, mass atrocity crimes, of three core crimes, that is crime genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes, we, of course, are very active in cooperating with the ICC. We hope that the investigation of, of the ICC will be a productive and effective one and will lead to real indictments and arrest warrants. But the ICC currently cannot adjudicate the cases on the crime of aggression against Ukraine. And as we see on practice, it will not be able to do that uh, in the nearest future due to the jurisdictional restrictions set up in the Rome Statute. That is the ratification of the Rome Statute and the Kampala Amendments on the Crime of Aggression, or the reference of the situation to the International Criminal Court by the United Nations Security Council. Uh, Ukrainian national courts, which of course, and, I, and, and this is really the very, very true, uh, true fact, that the Ukrainian courts shall be uh, the, the most responsibility in relation to adjudicating the cases uh, for the crimes committed by Russians on Ukrainian territory, but Ukrainian national courts will not be able to adjudicate the cases of the Russian high-level officials, in particular the uh, highest-ranked uh, political and military officials, due to their uh, immunities in relation to their positions, in relation to their posts. So as of now, we have this gap uh, when neither international courts and tribunals or uh, uh, national courts of Ukraine are able to adjudicate cases on the crime of aggression against Ukraine. That is why we suggest the establishment of a separate international tribunal, special tribunal, which would deal specifically only with the crime of aggression against Ukraine, which will not set up precedents for future, which will not be a model for some permanent thing, which will be ad hoc special tribunal, which shall bring to responsibility only the perpetrators of only the crime of aggression against uh, Ukraine. As of now, we gathered a good support of this project uh, inside the parliamentary assemblies of uh, international organizations. Uh, we have two resolutions in support of the establishment of the Special Tribunal for the Crime of Aggression against Ukraine by the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. And I just was in Strasbourg uh, together with my colleagues having expert meetings there. And I hope that colleagues in Strasbourg really do support the, uh, this idea of establishment of the tribunal further on the level of the Committee of Ministers of the, of the Council of Europe and, uh, and, and other organs and authorities of the um, Council of Europe. We also have the adoption of the uh, European Parliament resolution with very strong, I would say, wording in, in support of this resolution, uh, in support of the establishment of the special tribunal and with a call for the European Commission to uh, assist and to grant resources for the establishment of the tribunal. We also have the support by the declaration of the Parliamentary Assembly of NATO uh, standing with Ukraine. And we also have the support in different resolutions of inter-parliamentary Ukrainian and other states' parliamentary groups and fractions and parliaments of other states. So with this, we hope that uh, we can move forward with this idea and considering and deliberating, discussing it on the governmental level um, as of now, we have already uh, prepared and officially submitted the letters by the Foreign Minister Dmitro Kuleba to the Foreign Ministers of Council of Europe and G7 state 
states with, uh, with kind request to consider and to uh, be ready to discuss the idea of establishment of the special tribunal for the crime of aggression um, against Ukraine. That is, uh, in this letter, it is strictly uh, acknowledged that this is one of the priorities for the government of Ukraine. And we really look forward to the reaction of our international partners. Uh, we, we do, we do re receive now answers from, from governments of foreign states, and we are ready to discuss and consider this issue uh, in future. There are already events uh, being held here and there in Europe and also within the UN framework in relation to the discussing this, uh, this possibility, to discussing this uh, idea. And uh, we are really very much looking forward to the establishment uh, of this tribunal. In relation to the tribunal, we, uh, we acknowledge that uh, it should work on the basis of the definition of the crime of aggression, which is set forth in Article 8 bis of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, as we do understand that currently that is the de definition of the crime of aggression set forth in the Rome Statute is really the international law contemporary war, uh, version of the crimes against peace, as they were labeled in the Nuremberg and Tokyo International Military Tribunals, and we need to move forward with this direction. Um, again, I would say we, we kind of do not want to uh, make it like a precedent or a universal practice. We just want the international mechanism and instrument to be established to tackle and to work and to, to, to punish perpetrators of the crime of aggression against Ukraine. The thing, the, the war, the aggressive war of Russia against Ukraine, which we see now, and we do see this, uh, I mean, every day on a daily basis, it's the biggest war in Europe since 1945. We do believe that this is a nice and a proper moment for international law and international community to try to return to uh, having the jurisdiction over the crimes against peace, or modernly talking, crime uh, of aggression, and to bring perpetrators of this crime to justice. The establishment of this special tribunal, I think, will give us a very important opportunity, which is relevant to, to in particular, the crime of aggression. That is the, the possible speed and uh, velocity of the processes, as currently it may be understood that it is easier to work with the crime of aggression. It is easier to prove. It is easier to make indictments. It, is it may be faster to issue arrest warrants in relation to the crime of aggression uh, than if we compare it to the crimes against humanity or the war crimes, uh, due to the fact that everything is on, on the table and due to the fact that all the facts are being documented and are being recognized by the international community in the, international, in the resolutions of international organizations. And it's not so hard to establish this chain of command, which, which needs to be, uh, to, be, to be established when we talk about war crime, for instance, committed in Bucha or in Irpin or in Borodyanka, and linking it to the decisions being done in Kremlin or the Ministry of Defense, or in any other governmental agency of, uh, of uh, uh, actually the Russian Federation. So we, I'm sure, will be moving forward with this uh, idea, with this suggestion. I hope that rather soon we will come to our international partners with more uh, specific, uh, I would say, uh, ideas in relation how this tribunal may be established, on which basis 
on the basis of the agreement with universal organization or with European regional organization or on the basis of the treaty between Ukraine and the coalition of the willing. And uh, this is just uh, to, to finalize uh, due to the fact that we need to respect the time of the organizers and of the speakers, of course. Uh, this is one of the priorities for, for Ukrainian government, for the office of the president, for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and we will uh, be active in promoting this idea with our um, international partners. Ambassador, thank you for explaining the current state of a f effort in establishing the tribunal. One thing was very striking in listening to your comments. What, of course, was striking, if you look at previous precedents for special tribunals, in the case of Rwanda, Yugoslavia, Sierra Leone, those, of course, were all done either under the UN Security Council or the General Assembly. But the path you were charting wasn't that way. You were talking about establishing them in a regional, under regional jurisdiction, in a regional body with the Council of Europe. May we ask why you're moving in that direction? Um, I w thank you for a question. I wouldn't say so. Uh, I'm sorry if I may sound misunderstanding, but I was saying that we are active in discussing and considering this issue with the Council of Europe, ah. because historically, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe was the first organization which had passed two resolutions in two days in support of the establishment of the, of the tribunal. For instance, today, we had a great meeting with the members of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe here in Kiev in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs discussing mainly this issue of establishment of the special tribunal for the crime of aggression. But this doesn't mean that we are, you know, orientated on only one, one uh, way or, or path. That is to make, the, to make may, maybe my, uh, my sounding very, very understandable. The possible ways of establishment of this special tribunal, there are several of them. The first is, of course, the establishment of it through universal organization, which is UN. And of course, understanding that United Nations Security Council pass is blocked because of the veto of the Russian Federation, right. we of course are considering and discussing with our international partners the ability to move forward through the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly. Right. So this is variant uh, number one, it is on the table. Uh, the, num the variant number two is, uh, is actually the agreement of Ukraine and European regional organization, that may be Council of Europe or European Union. Again, European Union, European Parliament has passed a very strong resolution with strong provisions on the establishment of this special tribunal. And variant number three is actually the treaty, the agreement between Ukraine and the coalition of willing. Either these are states or states and international organizations together. So nothing is, is I mean, everything is being discussed and, uh, and considered. And the UN track, of course, is being deliberated with our international partners. Uh, that is to say that the deliberations in the UN and the United Nations framework has just been, I would say, started. There was a round table last week uh, within the UN uh, framework in New York discussing the possibilities of the establishment of the special tribunal. So everything is on the table, and uh, I'm sure that rather soon we'll be able to see which path may be the most effective and productive one. Ambassador, thank you. And of course, there's something um, 
legally powerful and politically very symbolic if the General Assembly, of which Russia is a member, were to agree to establish this special tribunal. We wish you the best of luck in your efforts. For our final set of questions, Ambassador, if we may turn to you. As your government looks at reparations and reconstruction, how do you see those efforts in complement to and supportive of all the things we've been discussing today on accountability? Thank you. I, I think it's very interrelated. Like, of course, as we discussed, this, the, the main goal is to win. The second goal is to get justice. The third goal, which is the motivational goal, is to rebuild Ukraine, build back better, if I can use your president's word, uh, to, to create something innovative, to create something new, to, to have the whole place rebuilt. And it would only make sense to rebuild it, not only with the help of our friends and allies, which we would be grateful for, but to actually that Russia should pay for it. So that's why I think, you know, that's where the justice together with rebuilding efforts are very much related. And hopefully we will be able not only through all the initiatives, through the Klepto Capture and others, not only through, um, uh, you know, great efforts of the U.S. and uh, transatlantic community on seizing the assets, um, arresting the assets, putting a freeze orders on, on so many, but also to be able to move past that and to confiscate it and to put it into a special fund. And it's all under consideration right now, so we will be working um, close together with all of our partners to do it. But I think the majority of, of uh, finances should come from Russia. Russia should pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine. And of course, then we will get together with all the IFIs and, and all the partners. And already there are so many countries that voiced uh, even which areas of Ukraine they would like to rebuild, which cities they would, because they have ties. I mean, Ukraine is... Uh, so interrelated, not only with countries in, in Europe, but as it turned out, with many countries globally. And there are so many countries that came forward early on and said not only that they want to help us with it, that they support us, but they would like also to have a special role in the reconstruction. But it has to be just. Ambassador, thank you. We have just a few minutes left. If me may open the floor for any comments, observations, or questions. They, you know, somebody from the judiciary be, being involved with these issues, and especially when the International Court of Justice at The Hague, you know, we all remember the case that was issued, Bosnia and Herzegovina versus uh, Serbia and Montenegro, what constitutes genocide in, in relations to the Genocide Convention in Paris in 1948, and the decision was that Serbia was responsible for allowing genocide to take place. With what happened with the invasion of the Russian forces in Ukraine, there was also an issue that Russia was saying prior to that that they were invading because 
Ukraine had committed genocide against the population in areas controlled by the Russians or the separatists. So when the, Rus when, when, when the Russian forces invaded, Ukraine filed a case with the International Court of Justice on uh, the 27th of February, and the court looked at that, and on March 16th, issued an opinion it ordered Russia to suspend the war to stop, and also that there was no evidence that Ukraine had committed Jews as genocide. So that was a decision. Well, Russia did not stop. And by the way, the International Court of Justice is a court of the United Nations. So Russia did not stop, and the United Nations did not implement its decision. Under the charter of the United Nations, there are ways of implementing decisions of the United Nations. Well, here, there is no obedience to the decision, and there is no implementation of the decision. So, we're talking about delivering justice to Ukraine. Well, here there was an evidence of justice being delivered, but it's not, it's not implemented by the international community. Mm -hmm. And there is a problem with all of this that we're facing. So, by creating a new tribunals, I can see a tri special tribunal for the prosecution of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and even genocide in Ukraine, because Ukraine will be administering all of these. But when you have international, the international community cannot implement, so it seems to me that the international organizations, the international system that we have right now Something has to be done. The, 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 the intent was well, well done in 78 years ago, but it seems right now it's failing and we have to do something. And there is a big problem, I think, facing not only Ukraine and Europe, but the entire world, how are we going to handle it? And what Ukraine is doing is a terrific job and everything that they have done. I'm glad what, what the ambassador has said here and, and, and everything else. So I, I commend what Ukraine is doing, but I do have a question how the international community, especially the UN and the president system, can implement its own decisions. Thank you for that reflection. May we open the floor for other questions or observations? Since we have come to the end of today's discussion, we want to express our deep gratitude to all of the exceptional panel members, Ambassador, 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 <laughs> Dr. Rosenbaum, and to the Prosecutor General. We're very pleased, privileged, to invite Ambassador Bill Taylor, who's the Vice President of the USIP, and has been part of our broad efforts to find any ways we can to support Ukraine in her hour of need. 
Thank you very much. It's an honor to be able to close this out. Um, this has been a great conversation. Um, I think uh, uh, it's, it's really, it's, it's so interesting, uh, Dr. Rosenbaum, that you started out on the Nazis and it's come full circle. And here you are. Um, and crimes in Ukraine and again. Uh, exactly right. Exactly right. And for that to work, and indeed to answer Judge Foute's question about how this works, you have to go back to Ambassador Makarova's main point, which is Ukraine has to win. Ukraine has to win in order to get this accountability, in order to prosecute special tribunals. The, the UN, Ukraine has to win. And today, um, in Madrid, the NATO is dealing with this issue, and they're looking at the weapons to provide Ukraine so that they can win. And I'll just end on the G7 who met yesterday. They said they're gonna, they're gonna support Ukraine for as long as it takes, as long as it takes. That was, that was a brilliant statement, and that's very relevant to all the justice that we're talking about here. So thank you very much for all this. Please uh, join me again in thanking the panel. Lise, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.